0: Hey everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. Before we get into the subject of the video, I just want to say as usual that if you enjoy this content and haven't yet become a patron, please consider becoming a patron at one of the three tiers listed in the link below. If you're not interested in contributing in one of those three tiers, however, you also have the option to contribute 99 cents per month in a very intuitive, direct, and easy way uh, through Anchor, which is the principal medium for my podcast and anchor distributes the audio of these videos to many other podcasting platforms as well so it's very intuitive and very useful so if you prefer to listen rather than to watch though it will lack of course the powerpoint you can always listen to these videos in podcast form and every video will be uploaded as a podcast, at least every video that is um, listed as public uh, and as universal content for patrons and otherwise. Um, So do check that out if you haven't already. But today we're gonna be getting back into our discussion of the principal purpose for which God created the world, or to put another way, what Christianity is all about. Because Christianity, when we you know, we use the word a lot, people throw around, oh, do you believe in Christianity? Or I'm a Christian. People mean a thousand different things by it. I think generally, though, the idea that most people have in their minds, at least in a vague sense, is that Christianity is centered on the notion that mankind sinned, mankind rebelled against God. Jesus somehow saves us from the damnation that we will experience on account of of that sin so that we can live eternally in heaven. Now this has echoes and traces of the truth in it, but in fundamental ways, it misconstrues the basic narrative arc of the scriptures. But I think most importantly, is the way that it places sin at the center of the story because let's remember that Christianity is not a philosophical theory it's not an ideology which was made up by man what it is is shorthand for the authentic interpretation of the way that the world really works at bottom now we have to call the authentic way that the world really works by a specific name that is Christianity Simply because we exist right now in the midst of spiritual combat, where there is profound fog of war and where the truth is known to varying degrees to various people. Now that might sound absurd to you if you are not yourself a believer, but what I want to try to do is present the Christian story as it is presented in the scriptures uh, on its own terms and suggest to you that its thrust is quite different than that with which you may be So, our story, of course, begins in the book of Genesis. If you're not familiar with my material, I am a very strong believer in the inspiration of Scripture, Um, and that means not only that it is perfectly without error, that's just a statement of what it doesn't contain. More important is the attention that we must pay to its details. Because Scripture, as the supreme exemplification of literary beauty, and of purposefulness and of meaningfulness contains meaning in its every jot and tittle. And so we have to pay attention to those jots and tittles as our Lord called us to, to see how they pertain to what he does in what we call the divine economy, or the divine household management. Mankind is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a major theme which I've mentioned many times before because of the centrality which it has in the whole Christian story. If you're not familiar with the phrase that I am referring to, it is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The creation of the heaven and the earth has just been narrated in the six-day creations, followed by the seventh-day sabbatical rest. Now, Moses is going to zero in on the sixth and seventh creation days. And in fact, the narratives are written in such a way that you cannot read one without the other. Genesis 2, in many ways, reflects knowledge of Genesis 1. And we're going to see some of those ways as we move forward. So the notion that this is a second creation story that has a very different origin than the so-called first creation story is simply not, it's not true. It is a, it reflects a very poor um, skill in reading any work of literature, not just scriptures. Genesis two, verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now this word day, I was asked about this, uh, a little while ago, the word day here has an extended meaning pertaining to the whole process of creation. And this isn't an ad hoc response. We already see this relationship of meaning within Genesis one itself in Genesis, uh, One, in the first day of creation, God calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. Nevertheless, the light is specifically called day in such a way that the whole 24-hour period is also called a day. And so by the same token, we find that the whole period of time can be called a day by extension. And we use this idiomatically in our own language. Uh, For example, we say, oh, back in my day. Um, It's really not, uh, this is one of those pieces of evidence for an alleged contradiction, which is just, it's just silliness. But the main point that I wanna make here is that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, introduces the narrative of the creation of man. Now, if you're just reading the book of Genesis and you've started from Genesis one and you're now encountering this phrase, this might not mean a great deal to you. But if you are on your second, third, fourth, or 50th reading of the book of Genesis, you should know that this phrase is used nine other times in the text. And it is also used, I believe, in the book of Ruth and once in the book of Numbers. Now in every other instance, it refers to offspring. For example, let's go to Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. Note that man is the name for the human family. Uh, And we actually see that the verse is written in such a way as to echo Genesis 2, which is kind of interesting because it's supposed to be from two very different sources. If the biblical critical view is is, cor- is correct, which it's obviously not. Uh, and oh. the point I want to make here is that it introduces a genealogy. These are the generations of Adam, because this is what is generated from his body. He generates the whole bloodline which is narrated in the text which follows. And again and again throughout Genesis, we see it meant in this very same way. So this should call us to go back to Genesis 2 and ask the question, in what sense can we actually say? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, the natural reading would be that this is the offspring or the son of the heavens and the earth. And I think a lot of people, when they encounter that possibility, they say, well, that makes no sense whatsoever. And they move on. They say, well, it must have some kind of metaphorical meaning or it just must mean this is the history of the heavens and the earth. And the reason that they're so inclined to dismiss this original possibility is because it seems very strange. It connects concepts which are usually thought of as very separate in the modern mind. But if we're to live in the Bible and not try to force the Bible to live in us, we should consider the possibility that concepts which we have separated are actually intimately connected. Now the notion here that man is the offspring of the heavens and the earth is actually explained in a relatively straightforward way by the fact that man is then produced from two things and that is the breath of life or the spirit of life which comes forth from God and the dust of the ground now in the hebrew language the word for dust here is feminine adamah but more important than the etymology or the uh, uh, grammatical sense of the word is the theological and symbolic role that the ground will play throughout the scriptures and indeed in many World cultures. The creation as a whole, when considered with respect to God, is considered feminine. This is because femininity, as distinct from femaleness, femaleness is a particular instantiation of femininity, femininity is a much broader category. Femininity is defined by reception of that which is initiated and directed towards one and reciprocity. So, for example, in the life of Christ in the church, Christ initiates a relationship with the church. He is the bridegroom and thus the masculine partner. And the church receives and embraces that which he gives, which is not a passive role as much as it is a receptive role. The reception itself is an activity. And the church acts uh, in a reciprocal fashion, giving thanks to God in the name of Jesus Christ. And throughout then the history of Christ's relationship with the church, there is this mutual engagement. There is movement towards the church, the church's reception and then reciprocity in thanksgiving. So creation is given as gift and the creation speaks with man as its voice with words of thanksgiving. It's a great deal one could say about that, but uh, it's just impossible to say it all in one video. However, when we look at Genesis 2, and we understand Genesis 2 in this sense, when we have the concepts of the masculine and the feminine in our minds, the specific language of Genesis 2, 4 comes into sharp focus. Specifically, man's importance is that he unites the two fundamental categories which bifurcate God's creative work. So throughout, the book of, or throughout Genesis 1, we will find that God creates pairs, which are distinct from one another, which are separated from one another, but which God wishes to place in relation to one another. And that relation is one of communion, of mutual interiority. And in the book of Genesis, this begins with the bifurcation of his creative work into the heavens and the earth. That is, the heavenly realm is the realm of the angels and the archangels and the ministering spirits in that great celestial commonwealth. And the earth, in Genesis 1-2, is a formless, void, and dark mass of water. We see that it is a mass of water because the spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And in the scriptures, as in countless other conceptualizations of the world. Water is considered to be a kind of primordial element, that which can be shaped and transformed into all sorts of other things. I'm not going to talk about that in the concrete scientific sense today, but I just want you to keep it in your mind when considering the symbolic sense of these texts. And again, I want to clarify, if you're not familiar with the things I've said elsewhere, symbolism is not something that we impose upon the world through texts. Rather, symbolism is part of the inherent wiring of the world. The world is symbolic by nature. The world has an inherent specific meaning to it. And when the scripture narrates history, it will always do so symbolically, because real history is really symbolic. And so we must pay attention to the literary craftsmanship and the symbolic intentions of the biblical authors, not so that we can rejoice in kind of just a mere kind of poetic flourish or an aesthetic design separated from the reality of the world, but in order that we might understand the genuine nature of the world as a concrete embodied poetic divine beauty. Now, I know that sounds kind of, you know, wishy-washy, and oh, that's nice, but does it really work out? Well, all the stuff that I produce is essentially an attempt to at demonstrate that this works as a paradigm for interpreting both the scriptures and the world. Now, mankind, as uh, the generations of the heavens and the earth, is the point of unity for the heavens and the earth. And we see if we look at texts which refer back to Genesis 1, for example, Psalm 104. If you work through that text, you'll find that it goes through the seven creation days in thematic order. And in the first slot, corresponding to the first creation day, we see the narration of what the author of Genesis means by the creation of the heavens. In this text, Psalm 104 describes the ministering spirits, the angels who exist as flames of fire before God's throne. And this isn't just an idiosyncrasy in Psalm 104, there are in fact many texts throughout the scriptures which describe this heaven-earth dyad in terms of the realm of the celestial commonwealth and then the realm of our material cosmos. But I think most important is the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple because the tabernacle and the temple are architectural representations of the world. There are many ways you can go about demonstrating this, but the simplest way is simply to point out that in Exodus 25 to 31, there are exactly seven speeches which God gives to Moses, wherein he gives Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle. And if you look at the content of those speeches, you can find that it correlates, in some cases very obviously, and in other cases in subtler ways that you have to study out by comparing other creation week patterns in the scriptures. It correlates with the actual content of the six creation days followed by Sabbath rest. The most obvious of these is the seventh speech, which deals almost entirely with Sabbath explicitly. Well, in the sixth speech of the Lord, uh, we are told about God's instructions for how to actually build the tabernacle. And it's that God is going to call someone from the tribe of Judah named Bezalel. He's going to give him a helper named Aholiab. And Bezalel is going to be filled with the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom, and enabled to replicate and express God's creative power in creating an architectural representation of the cosmos. Now, Bezalel is a figure of both Adam and the Messiah. He's a figure of the Messiah as he is from the bloodline of Judah, which has already been identified as the Messianic line. And the Messiah himself is developed thematically as a fulfillment of that promise of a seed who will crush the head of the death-dealing serpent in Genesis 3. But Bezalel is an image of the Messiah because we're we're told of his Judahite ancestry. And he's also a figure of... Adam, as Bezalel's constitution, as builder of the tabernacle, as builder of this representation of the cosmos, is by the infilling of Bezalel with the spirit of God. And that is what happens with Adam in Genesis 2. And just as Bezalel was given a, a calling that can in some respects be considered royal and in some respects be considered priestly, so also is Adam given a calling which is considered in some respects royal and in some respects priestly. So we see that the tabernacle is an architectural representation of the world. And as it pertains to the notion of what is meant by heaven in Genesis 1.1, all you have to do is look at the distinction between the holy place and the holy of holies. Now in the holy place, you have a lampstand with seven lights corresponding among other things to the sun, the moon, and what are called by the ancient world, the five wandering stars. These are the five planets, that is, the five stars which move freely with respect to the broader starry background. So here in the middle of the tabernacle, corresponding to heaven, is the starry heavens. And then you have to ascend above that still to see the throne room of God, where is the mercy seat. And on either side of the mercy seat, you see two angels, two cherubim. And so we see that within the cosmology of the scriptures, we have the stellar heavens. That is the heavens with the sun, the moon, the stars. And then beyond the stellar heavens, there is the throne room of God, where there is the celestial commonwealth of angels and archangels and all of that Good stuff. Now, Solomon in 1 Kings 8 will denote this cosmology by referring to heaven and highest heaven, or heaven and the heaven of heavens. And so it's simply a mistake to take Genesis 1 1 as an anticipation of what God is about to do throughout the rest of the text. Instead of an anticipation, it is itself is a creative act. And You know, people can debate till the cows come home about the Hebrew grammar, whether it should really be rendered in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth or when God began to create the heavens and the earth. But the real decisive factor here is not grammatical arguments, which often can cut one way or the other. The real decisive factor is the way that Genesis 1 is interpreted throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, and the way in which its cosmology is reflected in the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple. And when you see that, you recognize very clearly that the biblical authors had in mind two distinct sorts of thing when they used the word heaven. The one being the heaven of God, where God's presence suffused all things and where the heavenly council was. And the other was the celestial heavens, where um, which represents and manifests those things in God's heaven, but which can nevertheless be distinguished from it. But this fundamental dyad of heaven and earth is then often used throughout the scriptures to refer kind of to the whole cosmic order. You know, this is the whole kit and caboodle. And so Adam as the generations of the heavens and the earth is a microcosm. This is a traditional view uh, among the fathers of the church. It's clear in the scriptures, it's held by the Jews, it's held by people across the world. Um, And it's a very ancient concept that man is a microcosm of the world, that man himself is a miniature representation of the cosmos. Now, if that seems unintuitive to you, just think about how remarkable it is that within our mind, We possess the capacity to make intelligible the wiring of the world. Some people will say things like, well, man clearly has not been disposed to make the world intelligible in a systematic way because things like quantum mechanics are so counterintuitive. But here the person is making a serious mistake. Quantum mechanics is not so much counterintuitive as it is contrary to our common experience. Quantum mechanics reflects a world at a very small scale, which does not behave in a way that is analogous to the way that the world behaves on much larger scales with which we are familiar. But if we had not been familiar with any kind of pattern of activity, there's no reason to say that we would deduce by mere intuition separated from sense experience that, you know, the world of the uh, of quantum particles would be somehow highly improbable and what i'm saying here is that the very fact that we can develop such a thing as the quantum theory means that disciplined and rigorous logical intuition which is just wired into us you know you cannot prove the laws of logic they're part of our inbuilt wiring and this is they are self-evident in that sense mathematical truths are necessary Truths—they cannot be other than they are. They are very complicated and subtle extensions of certain intrinsic qualities of the world's self-consistency. And that language, which describes a range of possible sets of circumstances, can then be used to make the actual wiring of the world intelligible. Whether we're talking about very large scales, like the scale of galaxies, or very Small scales, notably in both structures, we find similar archetypal patterns. For example, the pattern where there is a central sphere or a central point which is surrounded by a series of whirling points or whirling spheres. You have the sun at the center of the solar system, or a star at the center of its star system, and around that star are whirling concentric circles of worlds and worlds. And the wor- you take an individual world, and you can find moons revolving around it. Now, you can go down to the realm of the very small, and you're no longer even operating in the terms of the same physical and mathematical principles, you're operating in terms of quantum theory rather than gravitation. Nevertheless, this very same structure is evident in the structure of an atom. The centrality of the notion of concentric circles, of particles or objects revolving around a central point is present at all layers of the cosmos. So, There are many ways to get at that question, but I'm saying all of this in order to underscore what it means for man to be a microcosm. The world is wired in a particular way, but if you take a fish and you try to teach the fish quantum mechanics, it doesn't matter if you have the best teacher in the world and he teaches him the best lessons that have ever been uttered on planet earth ever for every day for a hundred years and the fish is the most interested fish in the world, he's not gonna get anywhere. Because the difference between the fish and the human being is not a quantitative difference. It is not that the human being is more intelligent than the fish, it's that he is intelligent in a qualitatively different sense than the fish. He has fundamentally different capacities and powers to know things in a deeper way that cannot just be bridged by multiplying levels of intelligence one upon the other. We have to keep in mind that the idea of knowledge itself is quite, uh, you know, can be cashed out in a number of different ways. And the fact that the human being has the capacity to discern the internal structure and self consistent pattern and order in which the world unfolds is quite remarkable. And I think if we weren't given the idea that man was a microcosm of the world, we would have to invent it philosophically, because the information that makes up the world is in some sense inside of us, which is why we are able to actually make sense of the world. Now, this correspondence between man and the world, the fact that man is so like the world that he is a miniaturized representation of the world, permits man to know the world, and that permits man to fulfill what was from the beginning his fundamental vocation. Now man, by which I mean mankind, the human family, this is remember the way that the word is used in Genesis chapter five, God created him male and female and called them corporately, man. We also see this in the New Testament. In Ephesians, when God creates a new humanity out of circumcision and uncircumcision, that is, he has divided the human family into circumcision and uncircumcision, and now he places them in a relationship of communion and mutual interiority, creating one new man out of the two. Man is used in the same sense that it's used in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 5, that is the human family. And the human family is the image of God, the human family is the imprint of God's way of being God. Now, there are certain aspects of God's character, which we cannot participate in, obviously. It's not so much that God has aspects one to five and we can participate in those, but we can't participate in aspects six to 10, as if these were basically the same kind of aspect. Instead, there is a kind of existence which is unique to God and, Simply according to the rules of him being God, according to the rules of logical self-consistency, we cannot, for example, become necessarily self-existent because to become, to be self-existent means you cannot not exist. But if you're self-existent, it's not something that you can acquire. It's not something that you can become because to become something that you once were not is to be subject to to change and to be subject to change means that your qualities are not necessary. They don't unfold from you in a logically um, necessary way in the sense of the rules of mathematics, I uh, do. But man's existence as the image of God, if you read it in the context of Genesis chapter one, remember this is, you know, we use the phrase image of God so often that sometimes when we're reading Genesis one, we forget that it exists as part of this specific literary unit and has to be contextually read according to what has come before and indeed according to what comes afterwards. But if you've never heard the phrase image of God before and you read the account of the six days of creation then hear that man, the human family is created in the image of God, you would expect that man would do the sorts of things that God does in the six days. So consider everything that you've heard so far, that man is a microcosm of the world, that he's a miniaturized representation of the world, that on account of him being a miniaturized representation of the world, he has the power to understand it, not according just to his perspective, but according to the whole as it relates to each of the parts and the parts as it relates to the whole. And having that degree of understanding permits man to restructure the world so as to produce certain consequences which result from the complex interaction of those parts and those aspects of the world which man is restructuring. Just think about it, how remarkable it is that we can take something like silicon and restructure it in such a specific way that you living where you do hundreds of miles away from me are actually able to hear my voice. That comes from the taking of natural raw materials and understanding of the properties with which they have been endowed by God and utilizing that wisdom to shape it and mold it and create after the image and the likeness of God. But this was the vocation of mankind from the beginning. And so when God creates man, he tells him to subdue the earth. Now, the vast majority of human history takes place after the fall. You know, you get about 24 hours of unfallen history. But the question has to be raised, given the fact that man was not at war with God, nor with himself, nor with the creation, what does it mean to subdue the earth in this context? If you look at the other uses of this word throughout the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that it is often translated conquer. For example, in Joshua chapter 18, we are told that the whole land lay subdued before the children of Israel. And actually the text there is virtually quoting the text from Genesis one. There's a correspondence being drawn there. In Genesis nine, the notion of the subduction of the earth under man is called up again, but here it pertains to the execution of animals who rise up against men and men who kill other men because God made man in his own image, meaning both that to kill another human being merits the death penalty and that because God made man his own image, man is the lawful instrument to exercise the death penalty because he can bear the authority of God in himself. But let's consider what this would mean in a world where there was no conflict. No conflict doesn't mean something is boring After all, the restructuring of silicon into computer chips does not have as an essential characteristic of its production war between different human beings. In fact, that kind of conflict tends to make it more expensive, more difficult to produce. It tends to reduce the efficiency with which technology develops. Conflict uh, strives against our creative purpose in the world. So what does it mean prior to this conflict? Well, I think we can understand that when we look at Uh, the rest of the scriptures, which takes the notion of weapons and it relates it conceptually to the idea of tool-making. So if you look at the word dominion and you look at this concept of exercising dominion over a particular land, it's related very specifically and consistently to the idea of property. And property is that piece of land or that bit of the creation which you have the lawful sovereignty from God To restructure according to what comes into your mind, you know, within the, um, uh, boundaries of his law. Now, I'm not making a political statement about libertarianism or or whatever, so please don't take it that way. But in Leviticus and elsewhere, property is a very important concept and it's related fundamentally to this idea of man being given dominion over the creation. Israel is given a land grant. Uh, The church is given the world as an inheritance. The notion of inheritance cannot fundamentally be separated from the idea of wealth and property. They have to be understood as a single network of mutually clarifying concepts. So if you look at the idea of dominion and the idea of weapons as it pertains to dominion, weapons pertain to dominion insofar as through warfare a particular people or nation or person acquires a piece of land or whatever they're trying to get by right of conquest. They are able to restructure this bit of land in the way they want to restructure it, because they've forced the other guys to accept their claim. You know, if you know you disagree with somebody and you both consider it the most important thing in the world, at the end of the day, the only way that one of you is going to be able to enforce your opinion over the other, if you neither of you walk away, is by force. And the harshest uh, instantiation of force is in warfare. So if one nation claims a bit of land, Another nation says, no, that's not your land. We're still kind of living here. By the way, please do not turn this into any kind of political thing in the comments. But if another nation says, we're still living here, well, if the disagreement is intractable, then you can take swords and you can force the other nation off or you can try to do that. And if you do so, you have practically gained the right to exercise dominion in that particular bit of land. But if that was not part of the story, then take the weapons and replace them with tools. Because instead of, you know, con- constantly arguing with each other over what bit of stuff, you know, we have the right to do stuff with. Uh, and often, you know, when we get that stuff, we're like, well, what the hell do I do with this? I've got it. What am I going to do with it? In fact, in the original purpose of creation, the uh, stuff was already given as gift. It was the creative will of God exercised through man in the cosmos, which was the whole dang point. But look at uh, in Judges and in Samuel. In Judges and Samuel, there are two instances where Israel has no weapons, and they defeat their enemies, not by weapons, but by the use of agricultural tools. In Isaiah and in Micah, because it's the same passage, actually, the, the very same language is used. Uh, in Isaiah and Micah, we're told that in the Messianic age, the nations will stream towards Mount Zion And when they stream towards Mount Zion, the relationships that they have among each other are going to be healed because Zion, upon whose throne sits the Messiah, is the final court of appeal. And everybody recognizes his right to decide disputes between the nations. So there's no more need for war. So what do they do with their influence of warfare well they don't actually destroy them what they do is they convert them into swords or they convert their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks these are agricultural tools they're agricultural tools in large part for symbolic purpose but we have to understand that tools in terms of biblical symbolism this is kind of an abstract concept but it's an important one tools in terms of biblical symbolism are kind of fungible In other words, if you look at the cosmic geography that's given in Genesis chapter two, you've got a land uh, of Eden, and that's the land which produces food. And then you have the land of Havilah. And the land of Havilah has precious stones and precious metals. Now, Israel corresponds symbolically to Eden. It's the food land, it's the land which produces food. And what do the people who have sovereignty in food land do? Well, they use their tools to cultivate food. They produce a great harvest of food. They sell that food on the world market. I mean, we see this idea of like international trade in the book of Deuteronomy, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Well, what happens if you lend to many nations? If it's a good loan, it works out for both of you and the other nation wisely uses that which has been lent to them. And they prosper. And so the covenant gets confirmed on both sides. But if you're looking at the development of, and creative glorification of the world from another perspective, you just have to replace food with metalworking. Now, we actually see this exact thing going on in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the first city being. Constructed. I don't want to go into this in great detail at this point, but we see the first city being constructed, and we see throughout the dynasty of Cain how the culture of human civilization is being unfolded generation by generation. We see in uh, Genesis 4, verse 22, Zillah also bore to Baal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So we have metalworking being born at this point in time. And if you look at this particular generation, you actually see a son who corresponds to Abel, that's Jabal. He's the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So just as Abel was the uh, garter of the sheep and Cain was the cultivator of the ground. Uh, Tubal-Cain obviously corresponds to Cain. pulls things out of the ground, except it's not food, it's not agriculture, it's metalworking. So there we see the idea of the fungibility of these two kind of industries. Uh, He pulls metals out of the ground. Uh, And then there's something new. There's a third son and that's Jubal. He's the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we see within this narrative in Genesis chapter four, you have Adam in whom exists all the potential for all the kinds of different things that human beings will do throughout their history. And then Adam has two sons, and Cain is associated with those who pull things out of the ground, but he specifically is a farmer. And then Abel is the son who uh, guards the sheep and the oxen. He uh, is the one who oversees animal husbandry. Note again, the bride, bridegroom, masculine, feminine relationship here man is masculine with respect to the creation because man's role in relation to the creation is to be the initiator who moves towards it in cultivating guarding and glorifying it therefore that role even in english parlance is known as animal husbandry because these concepts permeate not only the scriptural text but our very patterns of speech because God made speech and to speech even when we don't intend it to will naturally unfold those meanings which he has woven throughout all things you see a similar kind of thing going on in the history of the twelve sons of Jacob there's a very interesting book that I have by a, a it's a it's a Jewish commentator and I think I don't know if it's a he or a she but Uh, I think it's a she, but basically what she does is she looks at the personalities and the characteristics of the 12 sons of Jacob, and then shows how those personalities are expressed corporately in their respective tribal histories. It's a very interesting book, Um, and I think it says something about the way that God has structured the human family in such a way that the qualities of mankind as a single organism, as mankind grows, man becomes both most more internally related and knit together, because as things grow, the only way that they can grow is into the oneness, which is the oneness of God. But because the oneness of God is simultaneously a perfect diversity, a perfect threeness, man, as he grows more fully one, will also grow more fully diverse. Man produces many nations. Man is male and female. And in both those cases, in the maleness and femaleness, and in the production of many nations in Genesis 11, God initiates the action by saying, let us. Let us make man in our own image, male and female. And then Genesis 11, let us go down and confuse their tongues because there is a correspondence here in the nature of human being, in being both one and many at the same time with the way that God exists in being both one and many at the same time so you look at zechariah remember this all has to do with subduing the earth the way that creative glorification works look at zechariah what goes on in zechariah is the replacement of the false altar the idolatrous altar it says god scatters scatters the four horns with which exiled israel and people think that that's the political powers the armies of the babylonians and the assyrians but that's just not true because remember, according to the prophets, it was not the armies which scattered Israel and Judah, it was their idolatry. That was what actually was working to drive history forward. And four horns refers to the four horns of an altar. It's a very consistent image used throughout the scripture. So when God destroys the four horns which scattered Israel, it's his eradication of this idolatrous altar. Likewise, we see in Zechariah chapter 6, that the spirit is set at rest in the North country. Well, rest is something that you acquire after conquest. The North country is Babylon. That's a very consistent image. And what's happened is you had the four chariots of God being sent out to the ends of the earth and the chariots themselves are a mobile version of that throne room, which exists in the inner sanctuary. You know, you pick up that throne room and God, it becomes a chariot and God rides it out of the temple in the book of Ezekiel. You can just read it to see the chariot. And that is why the 10 water stands in the temple of Solomon, which have holy water at the top of them, have big wheels on them. They're far too big to actually move, but these are representations of the chariot of God moving out to the ends of the earth. And it's a representation of that river which flows out from the inner sanctuary to give life, to the nations and so all of these images sanctification conquest they go together god goes out and he conquers babylon by eradicating its idolatry i have a whole video about this this theme in zechariah but in this context in zechariah we see the prevail of the toolmaker i think it's mentioned in zechariah 2 the toolmaker prevails because what the toolmaker does is he carries forward the original mandate that god entrusted to creation in genesis chapter 1 subdue the earth conquer the earth, to conquer the earth, to exercise dominion over it, is not to attack it. To exercise dominion over it is to know it truly. And knowing the world, speak to the earth and it will teach you, says the book of Job, knowing the inner structure and nature and wiring and inner relationships which exist among God's creatures in the world. You are able to wisely exercise dominion and manage those creatures not only in such a way that the health of the creation will be preserved, but also in such a way that its splendor will be increased. Knowing what makes things tick allows you to make them tick more efficiently. That's what it means to subdue the earth. It means to creatively glorify the world. Now the notion of exercising dominion and subduing the earth, this is split open, as it were, in two distinct vocations, which are very closely related, but they're distinct conceptually, and they are given in Genesis uh, chapter two, verse uh, 15. Okay, So what happens here is you've got Eden. Okay, Eden is on a mountain and the way to think about it is there is a spring on the top of Mount Eden and around that spring in the portion of the mountain, which is near the top, there is a very lush garden. This is the garden of Eden and the spring wells up at the top and it flows into the garden as one river and then it splits into four rivers. And those four rivers have many symbolic dimensions. But one of them is that they carry the presence of God to the ends of the earth. Another is that mankind himself is meant to follow them to the ends of the earth and give the world splendor in countless different ways. That is why we're told about the different natural resources and the different names of these various lands. If you look at Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10 describes the spreading abroad of mankind, beginning from Mount Ararat into the many nations which become the human family. Now there are allusions in Genesis 10 to the language of Genesis two. For example, Nimrod constructs a fourfold kingdom and it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babylon. And actually this is an echo back to uh, Genesis two verse 10 where the one river which flows from the top of Mount Eden became for rivers. Now, literally, it's became for heads or became for headwaters. And the word for head here, rosh, is the same word that undergirds beginning in both Genesis 1-1 and in Genesis chapter 10. Now, in Isaiah, we have this imagery and this connection being made even more explicit. For example, Isaiah chapter two, the the various nations, they come to learn the Torah from the God of Jacob. Well, it says they flow to it. The idea of the nations flowing to the god of jacob is imagery that is used of rivers and this isn't just in my imagination because you go to the end of the book of isaiah you got lots of allusions to the beginning of the book of isaiah at the end of the book Well, at the end of the book of isaiah you have the image of a river which is flowing out from zion the city of god permeated by the divine presence carrying that divine presence to the end of the earth that river goes out it sanctifies the nations of the world it builds them up into wealthy nations. Now, the notion of wealth has connotations of spiritual kind of uh, maturity and grace. For example, Israel's becoming sinful is signified by the devaluation of their metal. Uh, your silver has become dross, for example, the prophet says. Uh, again, again. we hear language like, come and buy bread without money. So this language, I'm not saying it doesn't pertain to the concrete literal sense, but we should not limit it just to that literal sense. The presence of God goes out to the ends of the earth. And because God's way of living is the right way, because God's way of living is the only way that's actually gonna produce a healthy human civilization. It facilitates the prosperity of the nations round about, and thus carries back the wealth of nations to consecrate a tithe from it to the city of God, the city Zion. Now. Of course, you can make a million videos just on Isaiah itself, but I just want you to pay attention to the imagery of the river here. Now, the twofold vocation to guard and cultivate the world essentially pertains to mankind's vocation, on the one hand, to preserve what is given. That is, don't rip up the garden. Don't burn down the world. Don't destroy it. This is what happens with Cain. Cain is exiled. He goes into a land of wandering and without living in the garden, he seeks to build himself a city. And the consequence of that is it's an absolute catastrophe. It's a city of blood and the accumulated evil that unfolds from this great mistake eventually leads to the flood, which is a baptism, a purification of the world because mankind exists in relation to the world. The world is upheld through the mediation of mankind, not just kind of in a symbolic sense and not just in a political sense, but actually ontologically speaking, God has freely constituted the world in his own mind in such a way that he has brought man into the picture, in such a way that the creation actually exists ontologically within man, and this is why sacrifice is necessary for the perpetuation of the world the perpetuation of the creation because god is the only source of life so if the creation exists in man and man is severed from god and the creation itself is going to collapse in on itself sacrifice is the way to maintain the connection with god and thus perpetuate the creation in its existence however when all the world has gone apostate in the event in the history right before the flood what happens well That connection is no longer being maintained. The world collapses in on itself. It just falls apart. The heavens open up, and the earth opens up, and they fall in together. Everything falls apart. That's why Noah's vocation is both a priestly and a kingly vocation. He builds up the ark. The ark is a miniaturized representation of the world. You're just going to You can see that, for example, in the gathering together of all the animals into the ark. That's a miniature, you know, representatives from all the animals of the world. It's three stories, just as every temple and tabernacle in the scriptures is going to have three distinct stories. And the language, for example, of the covering that's placed over the ark, well, that's the same word that's used to describe the mercy seat, the covering of gold that's over the throne of God or God's footstool, more accurately. And so the covering of the ark ...is like the mercy seat, and it's sprinkled by rain from heaven, and then Noah removes the covering at the end of the flood, corresponding to the removal of the firmament when God is all in all, and Noah offers the whole creation to God as a sacrifice, thus re-establishing that connection, which was almost lost. But the crucial turning point here is god remembered noah that is god placed noah in his own mind and the creation was constituted in such a way that it was in the mind of man and noah and his family were the only living human beings so that whole circuit enables the creation to go on in another era of history this all relates to the guarding and the cultivating mission because Whatever happens in the history of the human family, whatever happens in the creation, man is playing a central role because – and that's not an arbitrary thing. God has just wired the world to work this way. So you have to preserve what's good, and this language of guarding is very often used in the scriptures to denote the priestly vocation. For example, in the early part of the book of Numbers, this word is used to denote the role of the Levitical priesthood. Now, if you look at the structure of kind of the moving Israelite camp, you'll find that there are Levites surrounding the tabernacle with swords in their hands. And they're playing the role of the cherubim who guard the garden of Eden after the exile of Adam and Eve. So the Levites have these swords in their hand. The mission here is to preserve the integrity and the sanctity of the tabernacle both to protect uh, those who are not in a fit state to enter into the presence of God, and to preserve the existence of this link between heaven and earth in the cosmos. I mean, the construction of the tabernacle is a significant event for all mankind, because Eden, Mount Eden, is that central sanctuary from the time of Adam to the flood. The uh, people worship at the gate of Eden. But when the flood comes, that's destroyed, and there is no ladder to heaven, which I think is one reason why you immediately find them trying to build the Tower of Babel. And etymologically, the word Babel means gate of God. You know, it is a kind of a divine pun to see it as, you know, Babel babbling, a confusion, but it's gate of God. They were trying to build up Eden again before it was time. You see, the real gate of God in a story where Jacob sees the ladder to heaven and there's lots of allusions to the narrative in Genesis chapter 11. Jacob sees a ladder with its top in the heavens just as the tower was meant to be built with its top in the heavens and Jacob says truly this is the gate of heaven and what do you know if you look at the history of Israel this uh, the place where this occurs is actually one of the locations where the tabernacle was moved during the period of the judges. So the Israelites must guard the tabernacle as a matter of significance for the entire human race. But there's also the mission to cultivate the world. To cultivate the world is to develop it and transfigure it. And this is more directly associated with kingship, with royalty. Now, royalty in scripture is conceived of as the head of the national family. Okay, so there is no conception in scripture of a politically unified nation without a monarchy. The transformation from the period of the judges to the Davidic monarchy is not the transformation of a republic to a monarchy. Um, It's rather the transformation of a network of relatively independent communities which are united by a common history and tradition and religion and sanctuary, um, most importantly into a politically organized unit okay so if you look at the book of deuteronomy this is the major theme it's oneness god's election is that which allows there to be a single nation with a single sanctuary there is one place which the lord god chooses then there's one king there's one nation there's one god there's one lord this is if you just look through the text you're going to see the way that this theme Rolls together. Now, kingship is impossible to separate from the idea of the family. And the most direct way to conceive of it is in terms of the household. Okay, so the nation is conceived of as an extended household. So think of the nation as having a single kind of family table, they're all bound together in the same kind of unit. Some of them are bound by adoption. Some of them are bound by genealogy, but they're all bound together at the same table. Now at the head of the table is the father of the nation. And from another perspective, the husband of the nation. And this role is fulfilled by the king because the nation exists as kind of a web or a network of family units which themselves are webs and networks of family units. And so there's this hierarchical network, which is simultaneously a nested hierarchy, but at the center of that nest is the royal family, which even though individual kings pass on, the royal family as an institution is perpetuated. And I'm commenting on all of this because you can't understand the way that monarchy is conceived of in scripture unless you understand its relationship to property. Because after a fashion, the king is understood to have a stake in the entire land as his property, as his personal inheritance. There are degrees to which different people have stakes in the land over which they are sovereign. So if you own a house and you own a plot of land in Israel, that's your land. It's your inheritance. It was given to you by your ancestors in the book of Joshua. But it is also ultimately God's inheritance. He owns it all. And the king also has a stake Across the land. So that is why, for example, God collects a tithe, and the king, when necessary, can collect a tithe, a tax. Um, and you see the way that these concepts work together in the scriptures. But then look at someone like King Solomon. King Solomon is reputed for his wisdom, the wisdom to discern between good and evil. Now, this language, discerning between good and evil, you should recognize it. It's like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil just watch the video on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that i produced to understand what that's all about but it's about kingship the knowledge to discern between good and evil is the knowledge to understand what is the right course of action in any given situation so let's say you've got a very complicated situation and god hasn't written down oh here's what you do in this complicated very specific situation so the question is what is good with respect to this set of circumstances. What is the uh, piece of the puzzle that is going to fit into this particular shaped problem? And wisdom is the knowledge to construct new responses to the new situations which organically arise throughout history. So wisdom to discern between good and evil. You know, God creates lots and lots and lots of different things in Genesis one, he says, he saw that it was good. Well, you reshape something for a particular purpose. And if you've got wisdom, it works, it's good. You see that it's good, it does what it was intended to do. And that is why you can't take rule. You're not supposed to put a crown on your head before you have learned to exercise that kind of wisdom, because you're going to do a lot of stupid stuff if you try to put a crown on your head before your time. And That's what Adam and Eve realized when they partook unlawfully of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you watch The Office, do you remember that that table that Michael Scott built in you know the famous dinner party episode? You know it was this like uh, uh, pine you know end table, but obviously it looked like it was made by some six-year-old kid. That is what happens when you try to seize the sovereignty to unfold your creative purpose in the world before you've actually learned the wisdom to do it the right way. It's easy to imagine yourself doing things the right way. It's much harder to actually engage in the complexities of the situation itself and actually produce the right set of responses. But the cultivation of the world pertains to this aspect of our calling whereby we glorify and we mature the world god during the six creation days has taken this raw material he's formed it he's filled it that is he has placed things in relation to other things he creates both the water and the cup and then in filling the world he places the water inside the cup and he brightens it so the world was formless void and darkness was over the surface of the water so he forms things on the uh, on uh, on the uh, second day uh, he fills things on the third day. He brightens things on the fourth day by creating the heavenly lights. It's one way you can see the creation days. That's not the only legitimate way. Well, mankind is the image of God is expected to do exactly the same thing. And that is why it is indeed through a human being endowed with the spirit of God that the miniaturized cosmos is built. I mean, that is the theology of this whole narrative that God has created the world. He has made man as his image. He has put the spirit in man, thus permitting man to live a life that is in many ways like God's own life. And with all of that having been carried out, God gives Moses, a human being, the plans to construct an architectural representation of the cosmos, and man makes himself a world. God puts the spirit in Bezalel, and Bezalel with wisdom, and that's the word that's used, with wisdom, build a miniature universe. Uh, and if you look at the narrative of the actual construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, you will find that again and again, the things that God does in Genesis 1, Moses is doing in Exodus 40. Where God is resting, Moses is resting. Where God is blessing, Moses is blessing. And this goes back to that text in Exodus 8. You will be like God to Pharaoh. Moses is transfigured by the glory of God. Light shines from his face, and thus he is able to be the instrument by which God exercises his own creative hand to make the world beautiful. So, this all takes place in the narrative context laid out for us in Psalm 8, among other places. For a little while we were lower than the angels, or lower than the gods, but ultimately we are to be crowned with glory and honor. When God says in Genesis 3, man is like one of us, knowing good and evil, this is an address to his heavenly council. Now, the dichotomy between a reading of these texts that pertains to the Trinity and one which pertains to the divine council is a false dichotomy. God exists necessarily as Trinity, and when God extends himself creatively, he creates a world that is uh, an imprint of his own sort of life. So he creates a world which has a communion Persons. And so that heavenly council is an extension of God's own conciliar life. And that is why the language of fatherhood and sonship and the presence of the Spirit permeates language pertaining to the divine council. But God says man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and expels him from the garden. Well, then when you read Psalm 82, Psalm 82 is an address by God to the members of the divine council who, in his words, walk about in darkness and know nothing. They have no wisdom. They refuse to execute justice on the earth. And God says to them, I say to you, you are gods. Nevertheless, as Adam, you shall die. God is placing the curse on them that they tried to have placed on Adam. What did Satan say? He said, uh, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil you shall not die and so here god himself says to that very class of beings who followed and attempted to implement that demonic lie you are gods you shouldn't die nevertheless as adam you shall die you are cursed with the same curse you sought to inflict upon man crowned with glory and honor the essential point here is that this is the narrative arc even before the fall, even apart from the fall. Papaius says, uh, uh, I believe it may well be a saying of Jesus that he's quoting, but one of the, the extant quotations from the Exposition of the Oracles of the Lord is this passage where Pius says the first management or stewardship was entrusted to angels, but it came to nothing. The original kind of uh, setup for the world was angels were managing everything and The keys are meant to pass into the hands of mankind, the human family. And so during the old covenant, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has the office of head of the angelic host. Doesn't mean he has an angelic nature because there is no angelic nature. Every angel and species unique. They don't reproduce, so they can't be consubstantial. But he takes on the office of angel of the Lord. So he's consistently called angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament because he is chief of the angelic hosts. in the new testament when the keys of the kingdom pass from angels to mankind or they begin passing from angels to mankind the son of god ceases to be identified as angel of the lord instead he becomes head of the human family he becomes incarnate as the last adam and in becoming incarnate in the last adam and living a divine life in a human body and mind he brings many sons to glory according to the letter to the hebrews he glorifies the human family and exalts us to his own estate. So James Jordan says, "Man was like, or angels are like the drill sergeants. You know, they yell at man. They're they they are placed in a very direct position of authority over mankind. Uh, but this is all for the purpose of them eventually handing the keys to man and saluting them at the end of the day. For for a little while, we were lower than the we were lower than the angels, lower than the gods." ultimately, we are crowned with glory and honor. God says, mankind has become as one of us and then exiles man. But ultimately, we are brought into that heavenly council and lawfully given the knowledge to discern between good and evil by the spirit of wisdom, as we read about in the story of Joseph. Pharaoh says, who is like Joseph, who has the spirit of God, to know wisdom. In this language of the wisdom to discern between good and evil, one of the things that it can be read as is as a merism. So a merism basically is like a twofold um, description, which is meant to signify everything. So uh, heaven and earth, that's a merism. Now it is a merism because of the inner logic of what it means for heaven to be heaven and what it means for earth to be earth. Nevertheless, it is a way of summing up everything that exists. Well, the wisdom to know good and evil is essentially a way of saying the wisdom to know everything, which is why Solomon, in the practice of acquiring and exercising wisdom, You know, he is not just dealing with political issues. He has animals brought from the ends of the earth. He has, this is the one time apes are mentioned in the Bible. Apes are brought to Solomon. And so Solomon is brought all of these animals and he studies these beasts and he learns the ways of the animal. And from Proverbs, he derives parables and lessons from the ways of the animals about the ways of God and the ways that we should behave in relation to God. And after all of these beasts are brought to him, well, then the queen of Sheba is brought to him obviously we've got a narrative here which is corresponding to the beasts are brought to adam and then what do you know his bride is brought to adam so uh we've gone on for an hour uh we will cut off today i hope you got something useful out of it if you didn't i question why you are still listening um but thank you very much for everyone who has uh, made a contribution Thank you very much for everyone who has subscribed and who continues to participate uh, in this little community. And I do ask you all genuinely for your prayers. Um, and if you are Orthodox, please have my name, which is Seraphim um, included in the diptychs for liturgical commemoration during the divine liturgy. Um, so if you could do me that, that no greater service could be done for me than to have than to have me commemorated during the liturgy. Uh, so thank you very much.